We acknowledge that we are situated on and recording from the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe in what is now called Ontario. We recognize that Maud comes from a land she referred to as Prince Edward Island, but the indigenous people of the area, the Mi'kmaq, call it Ebigwit. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are commentary on the life, times, and works of Lucy Maud Montgomery and are solely those of the podcast authors, their guests, or those participating in the podcast and do not represent those of the heirs of Ella Montgomery. For today's episode, we want to thank Alana Mitchell for her 2020 Maclean's Magazine article, Lucy Maud Montgomery's Agonizing Drug Addiction. Hello, and welcome back to Maud, Books, Babes, and Barbiturates. Hi there. Thanks for meeting back with us, and we have to be honest, we do not want to do this episode. We'd rather walk through the haunted wood debating why Maud picked Dean Priest as a love interest in the Emily series, or wonder how Maud survived the 1918-1919 pandemic. Give us some pointers, Maudie. How did you cope? But... With our ongoing research and the aforementioned 2008 revelation regarding Maud's death by suicide in the Globe and Mail, we know we can't. Folks, it's Maud and mental illness, a topic that is ubiquitous now but certainly was not when Maud and her family were living with it. Back then, society covered it up and so did the Montgomery MacDonald family. So, let's all be grateful that we are living today versus back then. Change into our roomiest bloomers and emotionally eat an entire row of chocolate caramels. This is episode four. I felt like that fly. We are going into the murkiest waters. This is not a twee. My life is a perfect graveyard of buried hopes and despair. This is a full-on grown-up life which happened to include mental illness. Like all other aspects of Maud's life, Maud did not tackle this in a small way. She suffered greatly and supported her family like the renegade we know she was. She lived with her own depression and mania, her husband's acute mental illness, and then tragically her son Chester's. And she lived with valor and fear pill-popping and prayer. Because as usual, Maud wasn't singular, she was multifaceted. And nowhere was this more evident than her multi-generational battle with mental illness. We also want to warn our listeners that we will be discussing death by suicide, mental illness, and depression. If you'd rather, please take a break and meet us again for our fifth episode when things get brighter. We promise. A man saw a fly fall into a shallow ink bottle on his desk. He fished it out and placed it on a sheet of paper to watch scientifically. The fly went to work to groom itself and soon succeeded in cleaning all the ink away. Then he dropped it in again. Again the fly cleaned itself. And again, and again, that fiend dropped the poor fly back. Again and again, the gallant little fly cleaned itself, albeit a little more slowly every time. And at last, after... I forget how many immersions... It made no further attempt to rid itself of the ink. It lay inert and spiritless, a mere blot of blackness resigned to die. It could make no more effort. I felt like that fly. Those are Maud's words, June 1937, five years before her death, which we believe was death by suicide. In this episode, we try to unravel a bit of the why and share a bit of the what as in what happened. Not that we will ever truly know, because who could? Remember what Maud said about biographies, but we have a few tools at our disposal. Some journals, some timelines, and a familiarity with mental illness ourselves. So, we can try and unravel how it finally was all too much for Maud and share it with you. You can take what serves you and understand and appreciate Maud or not. Remember what her son Stuart wished, that people knew what she was up against, which in this case was a lot. 
she was put through the ringer and we grieve what she went through. We wish something else could have happened, but it didn't. The TikTok version is this. We speculate and hey, we're not doctors by any means. We're just trying to understand a human we greatly admire. Number one, we believe Maude lived with a long-term depression. Some speculate possibly manic depression, though she was never diagnosed. There were major highs and lows. Two, husband Ewan lived with extreme mental illness that was officially diagnosed in the Homewood Mental Health Facility in Guelph, Ontario. Maude helped cover this up with him so he could maintain his position in the community. Three, their son Chester also lived with severe mental illness. We're unclear if this was diagnosed. Likely not. Maude did her best to keep her son's illness hidden from the world. Oh, and then there's four. The family medicated with a cycle of prescription drugs from doctors they trusted. They bolstered these mixes with Maude's homemade dandelion wine and medicinal air quotes, brandy. And all this was reaching its crux in 1942. Another world war was in full swing, which Maude couldn't believe after the Great War. It was too much to bear. In this note, months before her death by suicide, you can hear the pain and truth finally coming to light. By the way, the hypo she refers to is a hypodermic needle filled with more medication. It's like Michael Jackson. I mean, it's terrible. My dear friends, a hypo enables me to hold a pen for a few moments. Thanks for your book. I will read it if I am ever able to read again. I am no better and have had so many blows this year I am quite hopeless. I hope you are both well. My husband is very miserable. I tried to keep the secret of his melancholic attacks for 20 years as people do not want a minister who is known to have such but the burden broke me at last, as well as other things. And now the war. I do not think I will ever be well again. I wish you a 1942 as good as can be hoped for. Yours sincerely, L.M. MacDonald. The Webbers sent her a plant. She was worried that her sons Chester and Stuart would be conscripted, and she knew what happened to those boys from Leeskdale who went off to fight in the First War. But, as usual, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's get an origin story going. Let's travel back to Prince Edward Island, fringed with alders and ladies' eardrops, and a Victorian-era asylum called Falconwood? What? PEI itself, like anywhere else, had their fair share of so-called village eccentrics. But, upon further reading, it seemed a much darker local history. Is this because it was on the ocean with the tides pushing and pulling? Those brilliant full moons? We don't know. Was it all those immigrants from Scotland and Ireland and England who longed for home, stuck on this tiny secluded patch of earth, missing their old lives and families, and encouraged to just work hard and not talk about feelings? Maybe that too. But it seems as if there were bubbling inferences of breakdowns and suicide everywhere. It seemed commonplace. Maud herself, when journaling about local neighbors, made many casual references to people who drowned themselves in nearby ponds or out in that ocean. This made its way into Maud's writing. Characters like Peg Bowen and the Moon Man were vibrant, interesting, and also people with mental illness who happened to live alongside the Red Roads and Green Gables. Suicides and murders were commonplace and written about in the local papers. Maud lovingly refers to a dark little glen called Suicide Hollow, in Pat of Silver Bush. Mary Rubio writes that one particular type of death by suicide, people would drink Paris green, a rat poison, and die a terrible death by letting their family members watch helpless. It's dark stuff. Peddlers would hawk bromides and barbiturates to farmhouses, including Mods. Rumors swirled about the lunatic asylum, just outside of Charlottetown, called Falconwood. Victorian-era women were struck down and bedridden due to hysteria and nerves. 
this was young Maud's introduction to mental illness, or as they like to call it, nervous disposition. Who would want to admit a down day with the Falconwood Asylum always looming in the periphery? When Maud wrote as a girl, she described talking to her own reflection. Geraniums, kittens, nothing unusual, just always using her vibrant imagination. She was dramatic and emotional, but always grounded in reality when she needed to be. She was sad at times. She did have some extreme ups and downs, but she was dramatic and hormonal, and her stakes were high. Although she became famous during the Edwardian era, she was definitely raised with Victorian values and life cycles. She was born into a tragic beginning. Remember, mother's wax and cheek. Boyfriends died, friends died, her father rejected her. Her outpourings of sadness made sense to us. But she seemed to be able to bob back up with a new dress pattern, or her cat would be cute, or her newest cereal would be published, and phew, just like that, fun mud was back. And you could almost feel it would be okay. Also, how often do we turn to journals when we're over the moon happy? Well, not me. I'm a robot with no journal. But Jenny, give us insight. When do you journal? Steph, most definitely when stuff gets rough. So the disproportionate amount of material on the sad side, as a younger Maudie, made sense to Jenny, and after she explained it, it made sense to me too. But then there is a bigger shift in her entries. We call it the WTF is going to happen to me period. This was a long, low time for Maud, around the time she petered out of teaching because she hated most of it and wanted to give writing more of her time. She laid it out to Halifax to be a journalist and then quit to come home. Herman and grandfather died and she was in a hardcore caregiving mode for grandma. Her life became much smaller and isolated. She complained of constant headaches and paced the floor at night to battle her nerves and insomnia. And the snow encircled the house all the way to the second story. That's right. Non-Canadians snow to the second floor of the house. We've included a 1900s picture of Snowden Cavendish in the show notes. The snow was too deep for her to even go for a walk. No mail could get into the kitchen post office, which meant no correspondence and no checks to provide an up in the day. It's like when you lose your phone, but it would be for weeks of the year. Grandmother was stingy with oil and only a kitchen fire was permitted. Maud wasn't allowed visitors because grandmother was surly and suspicious of outsiders by this time. Maud was a prisoner during those winter months. Her mental state, though, always seemed to improve by April, at least in the early days. If only we could have flown her off to Tulum for the winter. We should note that despite this hard time, or perhaps because of it, she worked, or maybe escaped, by publishing enough serials and short stories to support herself. But it's curious that even when times were better, after Anna Green Gables and Anne of Avonlea had been published, and she was hitting her career hard, her depression didn't just slide away like it used to. Could this have been because of the new pressures of fame and success? Publishers and papers asking for interviews and favors, getting her out of her comfort zone. What we know is Maud's depression was becoming a major deal. This evening, as I paced the floor in the twilight, listening to poor grandmother groaning with rheumatism, I smiled rather grimly as I contrasted my lot with what the world doubtless supposes it to be. I am a famous woman. I have written two very successful books. I have made a good bit of money, yet partly owing to Uncle John's behavior, partly to grandmother's immovable prejudices, I can do nothing with my money to make life easier and more cheerful for my grandmother and myself. And there is so much I might do if I could fix up this old house comfortably, furnish it conveniently, keep a servant, travel a little, entertain my friends. But as it is, I am helpless as a chained prisoner. It lingered this time the black dog of depression, as she would call it in her journal and in her fiction. This black dog of depression was never far from her door now, and her grandmother had instilled a constant fear in her, the what-will-people-say fear and the worry of the Rachel Lynns of the world. 
The mantra just got louder and more obsessive as Maud aged. Showing your emotions or airing your dirty laundry would bring gossip and shame. She sadly learned to suppress her emotions to protect herself as a survival technique, and this technique became a habit. She couldn't get on her phone and FaceTime her therapist after a brutal trip to town or when grandmother was being obstinate. She never really got over being an orphan, and she was quick to feel indebted. She could have escaped after Anagram Gables was published, even taking grandma with her. It's obvious to us. Even back then, women did do it. She had money. But if you're still that little Maudie in your mind, the little orphan who spent a lifetime being what others needed to keep a roof over your head, you stay. To us, it seems that Maud replaced the idea of obligation to her grandparents with becoming a dutiful minister's wife to Ewan and his parish. People will argue that she married Ewan to have children, and of course that's a major no-brainer reason. But she was also devastatingly loyal. She had pledged allegiance to Ewan. And although she had a thing for cousins, it was Ewan who seemed the most like family. This quiet Scottish minister who could speak Gaelic with the old people in the community. A man who fixed up the old cemetery for Cavendish. I mean, very kind, very thoughtful. So maybe he was the one who felt the most like her family. The one she was sure would need her. Therapists say you pick the person who reminds you of your mother or father. Maybe Ewan was the closest thing to those grandparents. They needed her. They weren't in tune with her emotionally and didn't completely respect her writing. This sounds alarmingly close to how Ewan saw and treated her. And despite everything the world had to say about her at the time, aside from the galas and the interviews and the portrait sittings, this may have been the role in which she felt most comfortable. If I could pick one person to speak to in this entire modscape, I would pick Ewan. I want to know what was happening. Was he really as one-dimensional as Maud wrote? I wish he had kept a journal. I know there's so much missing. Did he really have no interest in the kids in her writing? Why did he wait so long for Maud? Was she the great love of his life? Why did he keep a handkerchief tied around his head all day? Maud took that as a sign that things were going to get dire if she saw that handkerchief on his head. What was going on? This guy is a total mystery to her to us. Most mysterious is his diagnosis. Religious melancholia. Okay, this is hard for modern audiences to grasp, or at least it was for us, but religious melancholia is a real thing, so let's do this. It is a very old school mental illness first mentioned back in the Middle Ages. It basically is believing you're a sinner the second you were born. You were predestined to go to hell no matter what you do. Maybe the formal diagnosis made he and Maud feel better as it was directly related to his field. As time went on and the relationship between his church and his personal life became more complicated, Ewan couldn't make it through a sermon. In The Gift of Wings, Dr. Mary Rubio writes, Ewan's increasing anger over Chester's behavior may have reflected his memory of his own past, of his own sexual development, including his alleged window-peeping in Cavendish. Ewan was all too aware of the Bible's pronouncement, the sins of the fathers will be visited on the sons for many generations. These are allegations, so who knows? And we'll discuss Chester in a minute, but let's start with Ewan's window-peeping. Peeping Tom. It sounds cute, right? Like a peeping Tom could be the new host of a great British bake-off. There is an innocence to this term, the boys will be boys idea, but a quick Google search of peeping Tom is not so cute. The term now, according to psychology today, is called voyeuristic disorder. Voyeuristic disorder is a paraphilic disorder, which means the individual normally experiences sexual arousal when spying intentionally on unsuspecting people. That's from psychology today. Although this is briefly mentioned in Gift of Wings, we wonder how long this voyeuristic disorder went on. How did the community find out? Someone must have remembered and passed this on to biographer Mary Rubio. It was never mentioned in Maud's journals. We wonder about Ewan's illness and how he lived with it for so long. What was the reason he believed he was eternally damned? 
Sometimes it read as if he believed he was born doomed, but other times it read as if he felt he'd committed sins that were sending him to hell. Did he feel inadequate as a husband and a father and a minister? Or was he tormented by Chester's erratic behavior? Could he perhaps have been gay, but because of the Puritan ideas of the time, he just couldn't face it? We won't ever know. Any one of these things could be true, or something else, but we do feel for Ewan. He was remembered as a kind man. But of course, we often think about modern Ewan's relationship. With all those missing courtship pages, it's quite unclear. What we do know is Ewan had called off another secret engagement he had before Maud, and he was willing to wait six years before he married Maud. We also know that Maud depicted their relationship based on very specific entries she chose to keep. She kept this entry about their lack of chemistry on October 12, 1906. He came for the mail very frequently and before long fell into the habit of lingering for an hour or so and talking to me. As I came to know him better, I found more in him than I had expected. A certain depth of thought and feeling that was generally hidden and repressed, partly by his natural reserve and partly, I think, by the poverty and stiffness of his vocabulary. I began to enjoy our chats, but I did not think seriously about him until last spring. He had never made the slightest attempt at lovemaking, had never looked or implied or hinted at any such thing. In most men, this would have indicated an utter absence of any wish to be more than a friend. But a sure piece of the puzzle is that Ewan was having problems getting through daily life. It got to a point where Maud would write his sermons and sometimes deliver them, justifying to the parish that his ailments were physical, headaches, or kidney disease. Maud would not come clean about Ewan's struggles for years. In June 1934, it got so bad that she took him to Guelph's Homewood Asylum, the biggest private psychiatric facility in Canada, where they administered electroshock therapy. Upon his return, he played solitaire, much to Maud's relief because at least he was doing something, and he wore a handkerchief around his head during the worst times maybe to protect that poor head that had been battered with probes. Homewood claimed to believe that electroshock therapy was only part of the solution, not a cure-all. We both hoped that Ewan got the additional support he so badly needed. We look for the light. There were some nice times in Ontario. Some photos even of Ewan smiling, especially when his favourite, Maud's cousin Fred, came to visit when the boys were young. But increasingly, the pictures reveal Ewan removed from the group, often only showing his profile, hiding. And as dear little Chester, who Maud lovingly called Punch, grew up, things got more and more erratic. Chester was the light of Maud's life. He was smart and charming and truly a handsome little boy. Check out his baby pictures in the show notes, but he grew lazy and insolent. As puberty set in, things went off the rails. He took an early interest in girls and they teased him. He acted out in school. Teachers couldn't stand him and he started excessively masturbating around the family and the domestic workers, which was not cool with younger brother Stuart who shared the same room or with the hapless maids and their young daughters who would walk in on him. Poor Stuart ended up sleeping in a tent during the summer for years just to get away from it. This went on for years. Maud and Ewan sent Chester off to a private school to try to straighten him up. He cheated and failed and eventually got one of the girls in the community, Luella Reed, who was a distant relative of mine, pregnant. Maud painted Luella as coming from a bad family, but this was not the case, and I'm not just saying this because they are distant relatives. Maud likely felt she had to diminish Luella's family because she couldn't imagine a girl who would allow such a thing to happen to herself. Read, it's Luella's fault, not Chester's. This was also another example of Maud putting down a whole family as beneath her so she could feel better about her own situation. Maud and Ewan were horrified. The more we dug through the journals, the stranger Chester and his problems seemed. Maud could never keep maids and their children very long. There's an account of a maid, Mrs. Thompson, going down to the basement, and there Chester was waiting for her with his pants down. 
Maude would write that Chester was becoming more and more like Ewan. This is interesting because most of Chester's bad behavior, according to Maude, was sexual or sneaky. Ewan's bad behavior, according to her journals, was more about him being morose and depressive. It's just an interesting note. The writing is so cloaked, we don't know what was going on. He definitely had some sort of sexual addiction, and no one was sending their sex addicts onto Malibu for analysis. He couldn't keep his hands to himself. Despite this, Maud still loved her son. That guy could play her. She was desperate by this time for affection, and he knew it. Chester and Maud's worlds in the later years got smaller and smaller and very codependent. He drove her where she needed to go and stroked her ego. She gave him money and stroked his ego. When he grew up, the maids would report that he would sit in bed with Maud while she stroked his hair. It's a bit Hamlet and Gertrude and disturbing. We have you, we understand, but Chester was calculating and Maud was desperate and lonesome and forgave him everything until in 1937, Maud read Chester's diary. Maud wrote that what she read put her in one of the most dreadful situations a woman could be placed in. The Maud biography, House of Dreams, wonders if someone had tried to blackmail the family because of Chester. This is an interesting take, maybe. With the journals at this point, it's becoming extremely erratic and it's hard to say, but we do know that life was spiraling out of control in a big way, and with few people to turn to, Maud reached to the medicine cabinet. Ewan was being treated for sleeping and other minor issues, so there were always some sort of over-the-counter drugs on hand, many of them thanks to a close family friend, Dr. Lane. In that medicine cabinet, at any time, you would find, and I'm sorry if I don't say all of these correctly, but here they go, bromide, varanol, chloral, secanol, metanol, luminol, membutyl, tonic with strychnine, and arsenic pills plus medicines with names like Chinese pills, liver pills, and strong cough remedies which were also made in local doctor's offices. Ewan carried the syrups, which were filled with alcohol, around in his pocket and sipped them throughout the day to alleviate a cough. Also, Maud's homemade dandelion wine was always on hand, and sometimes there was brandy in her purse. The pills that were prescribed to Maud for her mood swings and anxiety, and to Ewan for his depression, did little to help. In fact, it exacerbated their problems. Maud's list of pills increased by 1937. She complained of a horrible taste in her mouth that was preventing her from eating. I'm sure you've had that metallic taste in your mouth when you're on strong meds. And the solution? Yet another drug for her liver. She talked about her sleep daily because she never slept well anymore, further feeding her depression. Maud and Ewan's bodies and brains were being destroyed one pill at a time on top of their mental illness. Later in the 1950s, these drugs were taken off the market and deemed poisonous. There were two big, unforgettable instances in Maud's life with Ewan that stand out for us. We always go back to these two instances as the most terrible and terrifying. The first was told to Dr. Rubio by Ebby Lafergy, Maud's dear friend Nora's son. This story is not found in the journals. Nora and her son were visiting the manse in Ontario, and the four of them were sitting in the kitchen having a conversation when Ewan got up, went to get a gun, and held it to Nora's head. No one said a word. Ewan broke the silence, dropped the gun, and then claimed it was a joke. Why was there a gun in that house? Poor Nora sitting there terrified. Also, that poor kid at the table, that was his mom sitting there. No doubt she was shocked, helpless. This points clearly to Ewan's escalation of mental illness, and we can only imagine the fear Maud must have carried around, that such a thing or worse could happen again. And we even wonder if it did. What could have happened between Maud and Ewan? The second horrible episode with Ewan occurred in June of 1937. A lot of bad stuff was culminating in 1937. Ewan was invited back to Leakesdale, home of his first job of Ontario, to do an anniversary sermon, and Maud was nervous. Ewan insisted on going. He didn't sleep the night before. By this time, Maud had become a nurse to him, administering drugs and things like sal volatile for his episodes. Long story short, he couldn't make it through his sermon. 
He lasted 10 minutes speaking disconnected nonsense before he sat down. Maud had to endure people saying things like, it was enough to hear his voice again, no matter what he said. By the time they left, it was pitch dark. Ewan was driving. We never understood why Maud never got a driver's license. That woman did everything else but drive. So she was in the car with Ewan and he was swerving all over the road. He was arguing with her about directions because he was going the wrong way. He ditched the car once and then twice. They spent most of the night in the ditch and Maud was in full realization that she was stuck with a person who was dealing with extreme mental illness. These are two documented instances, but we can only imagine how many more occurred. Maud was now in her 60s and the veneer, the suppression and impressing could go on no longer. She was just tapped out. She couldn't keep enabling and charming anymore to keep her place. Pen pals, colleagues, and families were shocked at the few erratic letters and behaviors. Who was this woman? There were definitely two Mauds, the public and the private. Even as far back as April 1903, Maud wrote of The Mask. Life has been a sorry business for me these past five years. I don't think anyone suspects this. To those around me, even my most intimate friends... I am known as a very jolly girl, seemingly always light-hearted, good company, and always in good spirits. It makes me laugh rather bitterly to hear people say this. If they could only see below the mask. I am thankful they cannot. I don't want to be pitied, and pain would not be any the less because it were known. Nay, it would be, for me at least, far greater. The later part of her life reads like a gothic horror novel. With the family completely out of control, Maud lost herself in her public appearances and her writing. She wrote the successful Mistress Pat and the trippy Blythes are quoted. She kept writing to beginning writers and encouraging them to keep going. She would respond to fan mail right up until she died. Then, as Liz Rosenberg writes in House of Dreams, she broke her right arm. Her final connection to escape, to independence, to financial freedom. It was gone. She could no longer write. This was the blow that was too much for her. She worked upstairs alone and took stock of what was going on around her. There was Chester, who, by this time, had left his wife and children in squalor while he charmed Maud and stole from her. He lived in her basement. Ewan sat mostly in the parlor playing solitaire, which he had picked up at the asylum. It seemed his only outlet. He would wander through the Kingsway village of Toronto, talking to anyone who would answer. The neighbors remember Ewan as being kind but lonely. And other neighbors, part of the Loblaws' fortune gossiped to the journey's end, the name Maud had given their final home was a crazy house. Stuart, the only light that Maud had left, had separated himself from the family. He was there for them in an emergency, but he could no longer shore them up. He had learned the lesson that Maud had struggled to learn. He had broken the cycle of dependence and realized he had to save himself. On April 24, 1942, Maud was found dead in her bed by her maid and cousin, Anita Webb. The family immediately called for Dr. Lane, the doctor who had been administering the over-the-counter drugs to Maud and Ewan. Maybe he had given her a hypo that morning. He and poor Stuart were called to inspect the body. When they got there, they immediately believed it was death by suicide, but the cover-ups began. There was no autopsy. Back then, suicide held an even greater stigma than today and was seen to bring embarrassment to the family. The cause of death on the death certificate was coronary thrombosis. On April 22nd, 1942, two days before her death, there was a bottle of pills on her nightstand and a note with page 176 on the top. It read, I have lost my mind by spells, and I do not dare to think what I may do in those spells. May God forgive me. And I hope everyone will forgive me, even if they cannot understand. 
my position is too awful to endure and nobody realizes it. What an end to a life in which I tried always to do my best in spite of many mistakes. Stuart pocketed the note and only years later put it in the trusted hands of his friend and Maud's biographer, Mary Rubio. Five years after the gift of wings, Dr. Rubio wrote a chapter in Anne Around the World. It was called Uncertainties Surrounding the Death of Ella Montgomery. She revealed that she was entrusted with this note before Stuart died. The more she looked into it, the more she wondered if maybe it was an accidental overdose. Maybe it wasn't a suicide. Maybe, maybe it was. We do know that Maud's story, including her last days, will continue to evolve. This is not over. And the more we are open to discussing mental illness, drug addiction, and family turmoil, the more we are going to empathize with and celebrate this brilliant woman. At Maud's packed funeral service in Prince Edward Island, Ewan, by now completely confused and displaced, was said to mourn throughout the service, Poor Maud. Poor Maud. Sorry, Mod Squad. We couldn't agree more. Okay, now I'm bawling. I'm sorry, Mod Squad, but thank you for sticking with us. This was so hard to cover, and we couldn't in good faith talk about this truly brilliant woman without telling what we feel is the truth about Maud and her family's battle. At the beginning of this episode, we mentioned it was Stuart's wish that people know what she was truly up against, so we could admire her that much more. And we do. What she defied, how she kept fighting and writing and writing and fighting, but Squad, we are not leaving you here. No way. Listen up. Next time, when we cover Maud as the original Erin Brockovich, how she, despite the complete dumpster fire that was burning beneath her, fought her publisher in a nine-year battle. Whew, Jenny, pour us some dandelion wine. Will this do. was rough. <laughs> Will do. Also, if you or a friend or a family member are feeling depressed or have thoughts of suicide, please reach out to someone. If you live in Canada, you need to talk to a professional. Call Crisis Services Canada at one 456 Four five six six, or you can even text four five six four five. A special thanks today to Tara Piercy for her guidance with this episode. Again, Ella Montgomery was played by Nola Augustson.